Turn in your Bible, please, when we read this morning for the message, a few verses only, Judges chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt, and brought you forth out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, and out of the hand of all that oppressed you, and drave them out from before you, and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites, in whose land ye dwell. But ye have not obeyed my voice. Turn with me in your hymn book, please, and stand with me. Sing together number 949. are their feet who stand on Zion's hill who bring salvation on their tongues and words of peace revealed how charming is their voice how sweet their tidings are Zion, behold thy Savior King, he reigns and triumphs here. How happy are our ears that hear this joyful sound, which kings and prophets waited for and sought. But never found How blessed are our eyes That see this heavenly light Prophets and kings Desired long But died without the sign 
The watchmen join their voice and tearful notes employ. Jerusalem breaks forth in songs and deserts learn the joy. The Lord makes bare his arm through all the earth abroad. Let every nation now behold their Savior and their God. Thank you. Be seated. <laughs> I have been looking over the past two weeks at different scripture texts which were consistent with the events of those weeks, those days, those times. But we return now to our studies here in the records of these judges. Time that spans between the more directly theocratic rule in Israel under Moses and Joshua and between that time and the time of that new order of rule under monarchs, under kings. In between these two times in Israel's history, falls this period of time we call the judges, the time of the judges, when judges ruled between Moses, Joshua, and of course that first king, Saul. We saw in that last message last week, again, that Israel's great burden, sorrow, and hardship and the bondage caused by their sin. We saw in a message that their sorrows were deeper, their oppressions were harder, their deprivations were more severe, and God's hand of judgment lay on their backs with more stripes than in any previous judgment up to this point. So great was this judgment as we come to chapter 6 in the book of Judges and now down to verse 6. So great was this period of judgment that Israel was stripped as we showed you before even of her necessary foods and forced every year to flee to caves in the mountains, foraging for the meager crumbs of a bare existence. Such was the state of Israel. It is in this condition and under these insufferable agonies, these trials, that we come 
to entertain the words together this morning of verse 6. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. I want you to follow the things that I'm going to say to you this morning closely. Hear them carefully. I'm going to go intentionally slowly. It is my joy and my delight. I discussed it this week with my wife. It is my joy and my delight to preach the kind of messages that I preached on last week about our never the less God. I enjoy to preach that kind of message. I enjoy when the word of God stirs our hearts and we spontaneously and unorchestrated desire to shout and bless the Lord. But in a faithful exposition of God's word, it cannot always be so. We must be faithful to all of the law of God and the exposition of it. And so I want us to look very closely today in our text. First at Israel's cry and then at the Lord's answer. First then we learn in verse 6 we hear of Israel's cry and Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. I said to you that chapter 6 opens with this sad record. Israel is again in deep distress because of her sins. Is it not so that as we study this book of Judges or even just a casual reading of it, that we grow almost nauseous with it, with Israel's repeated unfaithfulness, her incurable apostasy. We grow almost nauseous of it. But as I've said to you before, lest we be out of sorts with Israel, we need only but to look in a mirror and find that our plight is theirs. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown said this, Untaught by their former experiences, the Israelites again apostatized, and new sins were followed by fresh judgments. Midian had sustained a severe blow in the time of Moses. You'll see it in Numbers chapter 31. They were then greatly reduced in numbers and their country desolated 
that those who had saved themselves by flight might not be attracted to return. But in the course of 200 years, they had returned and increased in population as well as in power. And the memory of that disaster, no doubt, inflamed their resentment against the Israelites whom they attacked on the north and east so successfully that they overcame the inhabitants of those parts of Palestine and kept them in a state of painful subjugation for seven years. Israel is in deep sorrow again. God's covenant people are suffering. Because of their sin. God's justice has come at last. And judgment has fallen with crushing force. And now with nowhere to turn. Now when sorrows like sea billows roll, Horatio Stafford said in 1873, now when sorrows like sea billows roll, and now when Israel's shepherd has become Israel's enemy, now they cry. But look again. God's Holy Spirit by inspiration tells us exactly why they cried. They cried unto the Lord, verse 7. It came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites. They cried, they cried, such was their distress that they cried to the Lord But the Spirit of God tells us while they cried, Israel cried because of the distress of their pitiful state, their mortal agonies, their physical need, not because of their sin. The Hebrew word cried here, It's a wonderful word. It's a powerful word. It's filled with emotion in the Hebrew. It means to shriek out from a sudden danger or shock. They cried out. They shrieked out to God. But oh, I must tell you from this inspired record in verse 7, their cry out to God was not because it was not a response to a wholesale consideration of their spiritual needs. This is not the fruit of a deep and mournful repentance. This is not the soul-felt agonies of a nation pained by her sins and desperate for God's glory. That's not why they cried. They cried because of their pitiful condition, their sorrows in their flesh. This is merely the carnal cry 
for external relief. Oh, oh, even as I wrote those words down, my heart smote my, my own heart was smitten. And I laid my pencil down and tears dropped how many times? Oh God, how many times have I cried? But it was only because of my physical need. My own comfort, discomfort, my own satisfaction. This, I say it again, is merely the carnal cry for external relief. Oh, how many my prayers could that inscription be written over it? A carnal cry for external relief. I thought as I contemplated Israel's cry here of that very similar cry which our brother Gormley spoke to us of in his New Year's admonition there in Mark chapter 6. They cried out. Mark chapter 6 and verse 47. When even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea and he alone on the land. And he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night cometh unto them walking upon the sea and would have passed by them. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit and cried out. For they all saw him and were troubled. <laughs> what a blessed word that was to our hearts and I thank my brother for it but oh these disciples cried out but they're crying out because they're in distress they're in physical distress and danger and now here comes something else they don't understand and they're even more frightened and so what do they do they cried out I say it again to our shame, to our shame. Oh, how often are we crying out for something external? Just something external. They cried unto the Lord because, verse 7, because of the Midianites. And so we see Israel cry. And I deeply hope this morning that we can see in the sad shallowness of their mere carnal remorse that we can see in this sleeking out under carnal distress, a distress, distress which has no spiritual merit a distress that has no eternal value. Oh, I hope we can see in this the voice of our God to our own hearts. How different were those cries 
Oh, how different were those cries of the psalmist in Psalm 119 when he cried out in these words in verse 173, Let thine help, let thine hand help me, for I have chosen thy precepts. I've longed for thy salvation, O Lord, and thy law is my delight. Let my soul live and it shall praise thee and let thy judgments help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek thy servant for I do not forget thy commandments. Oh, how much different is that prayer? How much different is that cry? God, help me, help me, help me, help me. I've loved your law. I've delighted in your precepts. Help me now. Oh, how much different then when he goes on in chapter, the next chapter, the very next verse, verse 1. In my distress, I cried unto the Lord, and he heard me. Deliver my soul, not my crops, not my land, not my family, not my roof, not my food. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. God help my soul. What a different cry. What a different cry. Oh, how seldom are we inclined to cry out purely from a motive of our guilt and our sin. But notice with me one other aspect of Israel's cry. While it is surely, at least at first, at least at first, it is surely shallow and carnal. They have at least come to the right fountain. They have returned to a right mind and called on the right God. Amen. No more are they offering, in the words of Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 13, no more are they offering vain oblations. No more are they, in the words of Leviticus 10 and verse 1, no more are they burning strange fires. And calling out to deaf gods, Deuteronomy 4 and verse 28, of wood and stone. No, 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 from those caves where they've been driven. Now they're no longer calling on these dead gods. Now at least they have abandoned hope in all of these false gods with whom they have grown so familiar and they've cried out to the Jehovah of Israel. Hallelujah! At least they've come to the right fountain. <laughs> While these first movings of stumbling faith may be faulty with admixture of carnal motives. Blessed be God, at least they've turned back to the only God from whence cometh my help. 
Psalm 121.1. Her help cometh from the Lord, and it's to him that they turned at last. Well, I just want to say that again. While these first movings of stumbling faith may be faulty, and with an admixture of carnal motives, blessed be God at least, they've turned back to the only God from which there's any help. But now, let us look closely and learn deeply the lessons Whatever admixture of doubt and carnal motives may have been seen at last, Israel has cried out. I'll give you just these three little points as a side note, if you please. Some of you men with preaching might carry them someday. I'd point out to you that number one, they did cry. They cried out. They cried, and that was the right thing to do. <laughs> They cried and that was the right thing to do. They cried to God and that was the right place to go. They shrieked and cried out urgently and in desperation and that's the right method to use. <laughs> hey, they did cry out. That's the right thing to do. They cried out to God and that was the right place to go. They cried out desperately, and that's the right method to use. So I take you with those means. May I say to you that our God will never fail to hear. <laughs> Whoa, hallelujah. Verse 8 follows immediately on the heels of verse 7. The Lord sent a prophet. <laughs> We've looked now. I said I want you to look at two things this morning. I want you to see their cry. I want you to see God's response. Secondly, now God's response. Oh yes. Oh yes. Oh yes. God's response. Rest assured this morning, my dear friend. It matters not how frail. It matters not how feverish. It matters not even how faulty. Maybe the sinners cry. Our God sits not death in heaven. I thought when I penned those words, I didn't have it in my notes, but I thought about the old testimony I watched. Dear old, big old Billy Kelly talking about the night he met the Lord. He said there was one on one side screaming, turn loose, and one on the other side screaming, hold on. He said, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to turn loose. I didn't know how to look. Hang on, I didn't know what to do. And I finally, I just looked up and I said, God, if you could save a sinner like me, save me. 
Oh, there may be a great deal of fault in this, brethren. Great deal of fault in this, I'm afraid. The older I get, the more I feel it. There's a great deal of faultiness in much of my praying. Great deal of faultiness. But he's not deaf. Whatever may be my state, he is attentive. His attention and attentiveness is never diverted from his covenant people, whatever be their state. I said his attention and his attentiveness can never be diverted. Oh, we saw last week in Psalm 106 that for our God's name's sake, you remember that? For our God's name's sake, he will never forget his covenant in verse 45 of that chapter. While his ear hears, even while his ear hears, his hand moves. And verse 8 says, the Lord sent a prophet. Hey, there's, they're in the cave crying out, and even while they're crying, God has prepared him a man and sent him a prophet. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Now notice with me from this text. God did not send down a death angel as he did upon Egypt and immediately destroyed God's enemies. I'm sure they would have liked that. But he didn't do that. He didn't muster up a renewed and invigorated army and march them out in invincible waves of triumph to end Israel's misery. I'm sure they would have liked that. He doesn't rally the mighty power of his sovereign influence in nature that we saw in chapter 4 and 5 and destroy them before their very eyes. I'm sure they would have liked that. But he didn't do that. So what does he do? Verse 8. <laughs> he said them a prophet. And if you have a good old King James Bible and it has those good old marginal notes, you'll find there's a little number right there on that word prophet and you read the margin and it's translated a man, a prophet. (laughs) You see, the literal Hebrew translation here is a man, prophet. It's not the word man or the word prophet. It's a man prophet. (laughs) Oh, who is this? Oh, he's nameless. 
You know, we love, and I do, I love to talk about that nameless bowman in 1 Kings 22. But here we've got a nameless bowman of a different sort. We've got a nameless prophet. This man joins the honored ranks of those other unnamed prophets. Like, for example, that one called a man of God in 1 Kings 13 and verse 1 who comes from the town of nowhere with the name of nobody and references from no one and degrees from the university of no school and a pedigree from no clan (laughs) with just this only title just this only title which also adorns the brow of blessed John in chapter John 1 and verse 6 sent from God (laughs) this is all he's got all he's got is his title is his name sent from God oh what an epitaph would this be brother John what an epitaph would this be to be engraved on a man's headstone sent from God sent from God oh blessed be our dear God this dear servant this dear servant's name may not be remembered even in the holy record but our God sent him and our God knows his name and our God remembers Oh, he'll join the ranks not only of that one sent in 1 Kings chapter 13, but all of those sent ones cataloged for us there in the book of Hebrews and chapter 11. Unnamed they are. Unnamed they are. Hebrews 11 verse 30. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they were compassed about seven days. By faith Rahab the harlot. And on and on. And then he gets to verse 33. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire. Escaped the edge of the sword out of the weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, but they might obtain a better resurrection and others had trial of cruel mockings and scourging. Jay, moreover, bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sown asunder. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheep's skins and goat skins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and in the mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise God, having provided some better thing for us, that we might without, they might without us should not be made perfect. Others I've said, others I've said, nameless, nameless, nameless waves and oceans of them. God sees them and he said, they'll not obtain the blessing without us. All together, all sent ones, nameless, 
Nameless they remain, but I say to you again, God will not forget. God knows them. Oh, so God sent a man. A man. But do you see that the work, the work that's needed in order for Israel's help, the work that's needed in order for Israel's salvation is repentance. And that work has only just begun here in this verse. Only just begun. God sent a prophet. How very wisely did Bush point out. He said, God, having already determined in answer to the prayers of his oppressed people to grant them deliverance begins by sending them a prophet before he raises up for them a savior. I said he didn't raise up an army. He didn't send locusts and disease and death angel kill all gods. He didn't send an army. He didn't raise up. He didn't he sent them a man, a prophet, because what's needed in Israel is this work of repentance. And when we cry out to God, my dear friend, so many times, when we cry out to God for relief in a situation, what's really needed is repentance. Bush said it was fitting that their deep and unfeigned repentance should precede, precede the purposed relief. And a prophet would be the most suitable instrument for effecting this. The immediate object of their prayer, of our prayers, Bush counseling us now, the immediate object of our prayers is not always that which God sees fit immediately to grant. He may see that something else entirely different is necessary as a preparative to the main blessing. Well, I hope you're listening to me this morning. There's some grave counsel in these words. Yet another said this, The cry of distress is heard instantly by Jehovah. And the answer begins immediately to come. But only as is best for the sinning nation. As there was discipline in the misery to which Israel was reduced, so there is still discipline in the succession and several installments of the mercy of God. The aim is not merely, nor so much, to deliver from material evil to which they were subject, but to root out the unbelief and develop the spiritual life and moral life of the people. God did not send the help at once. The people expected a deliverer 
God sent a prophet. No word of promise. No word of promise is given by the prophet in this text that relief will be accorded to their temporal distress as a nation. He speaks only of their sin and shows the ingratitude of the people that they may feel how richly they deserve the calamities which have fallen upon them. How many times in your experience, sake, how many times has God, you've come to God for relief or something, and God, in the process of it, and through this reading of His Word, and in prayer, you come to the place that you're no longer concerned with deliverance. you become comfortable to the fact that you're where you deserve to be. The cry for deliverance from the yoke of the Midianites. God wishes first to deliver them from the yoke of iniquity. Therefore the prophet of repentance comes before Gideon the deliverer. The prophet of repentance comes before the Gideon the deliverer. So we must, so we must expect that when God visits us for our sins, He will deal with us as to save us from spiritual evil before relieving us of physical distress. Christ bore the sickness and infirmity of His people. But his great work was to save them from their sins. Someone else said revelation. Revelation from God is not primarily intended to satisfy intellectual cravings but to stimulate and enrich moral nature. A sermon may be, or I pray that we hear this, a sermon may be a mere exhortation, an impressive resume of acknowledged truth, and yet more valuable than if it were full of theological discoveries would be if it brought us to the consciousness of our sin and repentance. Knowledge of God becomes religious and living when it is realized and acted upon. Oh yes, before Israel is to see anything of a deliverance, they must see their sins. But strike, I think Bush strikes the right chord when he says this. In this and the two preceding verses, there is no express promise of deliverance, but merely a recital of the Lord's goodness and the charge of disobedience or rebellion brought against the people. The reason perhaps of an address so purely legal was to deepen their repentance 
to make them feel more bitterly the evil and malignity of their conduct and on the borders of despair. Boy, that'd be a great sermon title when I read that. I said, hallelujah. I'd like to preach on that. Just a whole sermon on the borders of despair. Bush said, and on the borders of despair to cry more earnestly for divine help. Oh, the borders of despair indeed. That is the place. That is the place to which the people of God must come. The borders of despair. And there, there, in the mercy of God, they will come if the man is faithful. And this man, this man prophet, was faithful. In his faithfulness and by means of the inspired record before us, we too may learn something of what such a faithful man must do. Let me give it to you quickly. Notice with me in our text, what does this sent man do? Number one, he speaks only what the Lord said. Verse eight, the Lord sent a prophet unto the nation of Israel, which said unto them, thus saith the Lord God of Israel. Number one, he speaks only what the Lord said. (laughs) He's not in the business of novelty. He's not in the business of business. Did you hear me? (laughs) I talk with seminarians from time to time. I run into them in town. Uh, Young men, yes, I'm sorry to say, young women, who are preparing for the ministry. And I talk with them about what they're studying. I ask them, what are you studying? What do you learn when you're going to be a minister? And I hear about courses about motivation. Courses on organization. Courses on promotion. Can I say to you, those are all business themes. This man wasn't in the business of business. He spoke what God said. This came, by the way, this phrase came to be the standard formula for all truly God sent prophets through the ages. Thus saith the Lord God. How many times in the books of the prophets do we find that phrase repeated? Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. That became the standard, the standard formula for all truly God sent prophets. He's not in the business of business. He's in the business of declaring what God said. His is a calling, not a career choice. He would have said with Martin Luther, here I stand, here I stand, I can do no other. Not a career choice. He speaks only what God says. Number two, what does this sent man do? He reminds them 
of God's just claims on their lives. He reminds them of God's just claims on their lives in the light of his former deliverances. Verse 8, that the Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you out from Egypt. I brought you forth out of the house of bondage. I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of all that oppressed you. I drove them out from before you. I gave you their land. This prophet reminded them of God's just claim on their lives in the light of his former deliverances. Oh, (laughs) they owed him. Can I tell you this Christian life, this covenantal arrangement, this covenantal standing in relationship by the new birth to our God, this Christian walk is not a voluntary holy club. It's not coming about by voting for Jesus. It's the result of the sovereign God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. This King of Kings co-owns us all. And it is His right to all of our allegiance because of what He's done. God hath made Him both Lord and Christ and His Lordship is not subject to your vote. It was never put to vote. Amen? I wish I could preach in 35 Armenian churches next week. I'd preach that right there. God never put His Son up for election. And it's not up to you to vote. You're not even qualified. You're discounted. You're criminal. No voting right. It is he that appointed your time and place to him, says. It is he that hath redeemed you out of Egypt, verse 9. It is he that brought you out of the house of bondage, verse 8. It's he, the mighty God that's contracted to a span incomprehensibly made man. It was he who yonder on Calvary all our sorrows bore, the hymn writer said. It was he who bought with his divine blood our full redemption paid. It's he who owns the title rights to everything you have, everything you are, and everything you should be. He has a title right to it. And this faithful man prophet reminded Israel of it. That's what a good prophet, a true prophet will do. He'll remind the people of God's title rights. What else will a faithful man prophet do? Number three, he reminds them who God is. <laughs> well, I love that. And I said unto you, verse 10, and I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. 
Hey, a true man prophet. A true man prophet will do this. He'll remind the people who God is. How few pulpits today are heralding this message. Oh, where are the pulpits today that'll take Psalm 24 and to use the words of my good British brethren, how many will take Psalm 24 and let loose and preach Psalm 24 and verse 7, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lift up, ye everlasting doors. The King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. Even lift them up, ye everlasting doors. And the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. How many pulpits are prepared this morning to preach that? Where are the pulpits today that would read? <laughs> Come into their pulpit and read from Psalm chapter number 50. Psalm chapter number 50 and verse 1. I wish I could preach the whole chapter this morning. I don't have time. I've got to quit. Psalm 50, the mighty God, even the Lord, hath spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun unto the going down thereof, out of Zion, the perfection of beauty. God hath shined. Our God shall come and shall keep not, and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him. It shall be very tempestuous round about him. He shall call the heavens from above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice and the heavens shall declare his righteousness for God is judge himself hear O my people and I'll speak oh Israel and I'll testify against thee I am God even I even thy God oh I could go on and on read through the 14th verse of that chapter how many pulpits this morning how many pulpits this morning how many pulpits this morning are prepared to turn in in those pastures and graves oh who will take the text who will dare this morning this in this county right here in this county I ask you how many will take a text from Amos chapter 2 thus saith the Lord for their transgressions of Moab and for, 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 the, for the three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not turn away thy, thy punishment thereof because he burned the bones of the king of Edom into lime. But I'll send a fire upon Moab. I'll devour the palaces. Oh, I'll devour, I'll send a fire, I'll cut off the judge from the midst thereof, thus saith the Lord. For three transgressions of Judah and for four, I'll not turn away their punishment. Because they've despised the law of the Lord and not kept His commandments, their lips and their lies have caused them to err. I'll send a fire, verse 5, upon Judah. I'll devour the palaces of Jerusalem and on and on the prophet. How many prophets are prepared this morning to go to Amos chapter 2 and take a text and declare the truth? This man of God did. 
this prophet of God did, this sent man did. Oh, this is what a sent man will do. But oh, listen to me. This faint-hearted, panning-wasted, milk-toast, career climbers of seminary and schoolboys in our churches today, they got no stomach for it. I've reminded you many times that dear great message Brother Lester O'Loughlin brought in 1971, the need of the hour of the mad prophet. Oh, my brethren, a true man prophet sent will tell them who God is. Amen. Tell them who God is. Number four, and finally, what will he do? What will this man prophet do? He'll remind them boldly and not in veiled terms of their own incurable backsliding. Verse 10. And the last phrase of that verse, but ye have not obeyed my voice. A true sent prophet, man prophet, will not be shy to name the people's sins and remind them of it. Oh, said this nameless prophet here in this text, after listing those things in verse 7 and 8, you, in our modern language, in our modern lingo, if I may use it, the prophet stood before them and said, this will not do, this will not do, this will not do, this will not do. You have continued in your sin and this will not do. Your cries are vain. Your pleadings are useless. Your frenzied dramas are hopeless until you've dealt with your sin. Oh, in Second Samuel 12 and verse 7, we saw another man, prophet. And what did he say in that verse? To the king, he said, Thou art the man. Pointed his finger in his face and said, Thou art the man. Oh, what did that faithful sent prophet Daniel saying chapter 6 and verse 27, Thou art weighed in the prompt, in the balances of God and found wanting. That's what a sent prophet will do. Oh, in 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 18, it's a sent prophet that said, It is thou and thy father's house that have troubled Israel. Faithful Elijah. He said, you're troubling Israel. He pointed his finger and said, no, you and your father's house, you're troubling Israel. (laughs) Oh, listen to me. 
It was a faithful prophet, a Baptist, who tells Herod to his face, it is not lawful for thee to have her. It was somewhere around 1758 that the ever-blessed Samuel Davies preaching on the qualifications for ministerial office said this. Now such is the nature of the ministerial office that there is much need of this happy prepossession of mankind in our favor that we may discharge it with comfort and success. We are not only to display the rich grace of the gospel and the fair prospects of a blessed immortality but also to denounce the terrors of the Lord and rouse up again the lightning and the thunder and the tempest of Sinai. We must represent human nature in its present fallen state in a very disagreeable and mortifying light. We must overturn the flattering hopes of mankind and embitter to them the false measures of sin in which they place so much of their happiness. We must put the cross of Christ on their shoulder and reconcile them to self-denial, reproach, and various forms of suffering for the sake of righteousness. Who's prepared to preach that today? Whose seminary is teaching their ministerial students these duties today? We're not here to make them smile, to make them laugh. He said we need to reconcile them to the self-denial of the cross. We must inculcate upon them a religion for sinners in which self-accusation, remorse, fear, sorrow, and all the painful heartbreakings of repentance are necessary ingredients. This, he said, is what we need to be preaching. We must set ourselves in a strenuous opposition to the favorite lusts of the world and the ways of the multitude. Well, this is going to take a man. This is going to take a man to do this. And this alone will set the world against us as their enemies and as disturbers of the peace. We must also exercise the rod of discipline for the correction of offenders. We must take upon us the ungrateful office of reprovers and give the reproof with proper degrees of severity. In short, the faithful discharge of our office will oblige us to use such measures as have been found by the experience of thousands of years to be very unpopular and irritating to mankind. Measures which brought upon the prophets and apostles and the other servants of Christ the odium of the world and cost many of them their lives. 
And if we tread in their steps, we may well expect the same treatment in some greater or lesser degree. Oh, blessed Lord, I'm trying to get you to understand what a faithful sent prophet will do. I would show you this morning that when God purposes to deliver his people, he will send these men to do this job before he sends an angel in verse 11 to work a deliverance. Luke's New New Year's message was very timely as well. Timely to this text. A man of God sent. This is what he'll do. Seek out such a man. Someone said, and I quote, Seek out such a man and hold him dear. Israel cried, and God answered, Son of man. Turn with me, please, and stand with me again. Number 946, we sing together. Bow thine ear, attentive to our earnest prayer. We plead for those who plead for thee, successful pleaders may they be. How great their work, how vast their charge. Do thou their anxious souls enlarge. Their best endowments are our gain. We share the blessings they obtain. Oh, clothed with energy divine, their words and let those words be thine. To them thy sacred truth reveal, suppress their fear, inflame their zeal. Teach them to sow the precious seed. Teach them thy chosen flock to feed. Teach them immortal souls to gain. 
must reward their toil and pain. Let thronging multitudes around hear from their lips the joyful sound. In humble strains, thy grace implore, and feel thy spirit's living power. Thank you.